The widespread impact of the coronavirus on property markets across the world has been nothing if not surprising. And one aspect that we haven't yet explored on this podcast is the prestige market. What is driving the incredible price growth that we've been hearing about across this segment? Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia and author of Auction Ready. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say on here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of a professional. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website as well as download our free full or forecaster report, which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au The prestige property market in Australia has been performing remarkably from the latter half of 2020, and we're talking about what's called the super prime market. And to qualify for the label, the sale price needs to be over $10 million in Sydney and Melbourne or $7 million elsewhere. And to give you some context, sales volume in the third quarter of 2020 was the second greatest recorded for any one quarter, and the number of Sydney sales transactions in that quarter was 94% higher than the same quarter in 2019. To give us some insights into why this is happening, we're joined today by Michelle Chiselski, partner and head of residential research at Knight Frank Australia. Michelle heads the team, the residential research team, I should say, producing residential insights that are shared via publications and presentations specialising in development sites, foreign investment, apartment projects and established property covering both the prestige and mainstream residential markets across Australia. Now, we really thank you for joining us today, Michelle. This has been a conversation long in the making. We're really interested in gaining an understanding or a better understanding of this segment from you. Thank you for having me on. I've uh, certainly been looking forward to this one. It's um, a part of the market that has been going absolute gang- gangbusters, and uh, we love talking about the uh, the prestige, um, you know, the glamorous, the lux- luxurious homes that we get to deal with um, day in day day out at night, Frank. Um, and my, my role is to to research this um, this part of the market, and it's uh, a super exciting space to be working in at the moment. Yeah, before we sort of go deep into sort of how the prestige markets, uh, which is a whole other world, I guess, to other price segments, um, I guess one of the things that we can really, in Australia, we think that we're an island and what's happening here is not happening everywhere else in the world. But from a property sort of market perspective, where else in the world is booming? Because we're not unique, right? Look, we, we certainly aren't unique um, and I guess even through what we are, you know, living through a pandemic, it's not um, something one would be expecting for us to be seeing such super, um, you know, mm. um, growth in, in our, our markets around um, around the country but also around the world. Um, it's quite interesting because obviously I, I pulled together these, da- these data um, sets every quarter and monitor throughout, um, you know, on a daily basis. And it's interesting because when I submit um, our uh, results through to our global team, I always think, gosh, we're going to be, you know, right up at the top this time. And uh, gosh, you know, <laughs> we're going to have so many people that are, you know, questioning how how are we doing so well. And, and then I, I look at the results and we're, you know, sort of halfway down the board. And it just goes to show that, you know, I guess in uncertain times, property is one of those, um, I guess, asset classes where people feel comfortable that, mm. you know, investing in property um, or, you know, expanding their property property portfolios, um, it, it, I guess, gives it, gives uh, people some comfort um, that there will be, um, you know, something in the future for them to, um, I guess, fall back on or enjoy, I guess, um, going forward. The prestige end of the market, though, can be a bit more of a roller coaster ride than sort of the normal part of the market. And, you know, I mean, it, it literally this morning I was reading an article, I think it's... Um, Simon Baker, he sold his house in Bronte and uh, he bought it, what, three or four years ago, something for six million or something and just sold it for something like 18. Um, Across the road, another one sold for 17 after having a renovation. I mean, like, you know, in a few years without a renovation, you know, you've tripled in value. Um, Now, that's just one 
example. I'm not saying it's all happened like that, but that's that's a massive roller coaster, isn't it? And what is driving? I mean, he's a he's a, an actor, of course. I mean, you know, is he unique in in having access to that much money? I don't know. I mean, you, with the Cannon Brooks, you know, the uh, the Atlassian um, founders, they've been you know having a massive uh, cash splash across the state really buying some full-on prestige properties um not just in sydney where is this money coming from are these people unique clearly not because they're competing with somebody you know somebody's come along and bought that house that simon had you know what is driving it where's it coming from yeah i think you somewhat hit the nail on the head there when we're talking about the the prestige end of the market people do tend to be building property portfolios so that means that when they are selling um, or when they're buying and selling, they're not necessarily needing to sell out of something to buy um, and therefore the property portfolio expands. Mm. What that means is at the very top end of the market, there is a already a, a lower number of properties to choose from. Um, so therefore, if there's properties not coming back onto the market, then therefore there's only a, a you know very slim pickings at the very top. <laughs> Throw in um, a pandemic where we are seeing um, a lot of our ultra wealthy clients, you know, remain in Australia for a, a lengthy amount of time, much longer than what they've probably stayed in Australia uh, for, for mm. you know, n- numerous years now. Um, they're not travelling around, and there's, I guess, somewhat a perception that they've had more time on their hands to consider, um, I guess. Um, how they like to enjoy their time, how they are going to preserve their wealth, how they're going to pass on to the next generation. And a lot of this, um, you know, it essentially um, comes down to, to property and property feeds into each one of those narratives. Mm. So, you know, I guess looking at um, the ultra-wealthy population themselves, you know, they have grown um, as a collective group um, in that in the year of 2020, uh, we saw that group um, the, uh, grow by more than 11% um, in Australia. And when we're looking at that group, we're looking at those that are worth 30 million US or more, including their home. So to be in an, um, 2020, knowing that that group has grown by 11%, the year, the year before that group grew by about 6%, um, we know that you know their, their primary residences have increased in value over that time. But, you know, looking at their other, the other components of their investment portfolios, you know, things like, you know, the stock market also performed well over that time. Um, you know, they've got the rising value of, um, you know, their collectible cars and boats and other luxury items. Um, and I guess overriding something that, you know, we, we often get asked about is, you know, we are in a very low interest rate environment and that seems to be the, the driver for the mainstream market. But when we're talking about the prestige end, when we saw, um, I guess, um, the market pull back in the mainstream market when uh, responsible lending was introduced and tightened um, yeah. to the mainstream market, that wasn't that, that this part of the market wasn't affected because they weren't relying so much on, mm. um, you know, the borrowing side aspect of, of um, the low interest rate environment. But what they are able to do is to potentially use that um, to uh, boost a, a part of their, their business um, venture or they're able to, you know, I guess recreate um, their um, desire to, to grow their wealth over the coming years. So whether that means that um, in this environment that they may borrow money to, to, in, to invest in a, um, a residential property where they might not have in the past, it just means that they'll be able to use that money in a, in a different way. Um, and we're seeing that a lot more with our ultra wealthy clients than uh, what we would have seen maybe you know three four years ago. Um, and you know just that spending more time in Australia and appreciating I guess what we've got here, you know the closed borders have certainly had an impact um, where I guess this group um, are quite used to being agile and and in to some extent not necessarily being told what to do. you know they tend to be business owners and they're possibly at the top of the chain in the, in the business and they tend to be, you know, I guess somewhat instructing others in the business what to do. So mm. to be told they can't do a lot of things, I think that opens up a lot of um, reassessing of, of what they want to do and that's, I guess, where we've seen 
you know, more um, activity um, in the uh, on the periphery or the, the semi-rural areas of, of the capital cities in Australia. So, so you mentioned there a really good point, actually, the start of the pandemic, um, everyone's got a, a certain amount of assets and property is seen as sort of a safe haven. And at that sort of top end, have you seen people sort of, instead of investing in their business or instead of investing in buying more shares, um, let's just buy, you know, residential property because, you know, bricks and mortar, safest houses, all that sort of belief, um, even if they're not going to use it from a lifestyle point of view. Like they're not going to, you know, go and have this, you know, place in Noosa, but they just think that's a good investment. So let's just put some money there or let's just buy a house on the northern beaches or whatever. If finding that a lot of clients are just buying it just purely from an investment but no lifestyle benefit at all. Yeah, look, it's um, it's interesting because I guess you can look at that um, in, in different ways. There's the group that believes that they have um, accumulated a lot of wealth, um, whether that be that they inherited or they have created that wealth, and they are concerned about passing it to the next generation. They're also concerned, I guess, that their um, children and their grandchildren um possibly on their own, won't be able to get into the property market um, as easily as they perhaps have. So they are looking at that part of, um, I guess, wealth preservation for future generations. So yes, in a way, they may be buying up residential homes for their future generations Mm. um, and not necessarily enjoying them as a lifestyle um, property. Um, I guess you've got others that are um, I guess in, a, in an ageing um, cohort where they're reassessing possibly their and, and you know I guess the working from home exper- ex- experiment that we've all endured and still do um, for the next couple of weeks. Um, we are I guess looking at that to say well you know possibly if I am you know at the top of the, the, the business and I don't necessarily need to be in the office as often as I, uh, as I have been you know, perhaps I can have more of a co-primary uh, residence where, you know, we might have the, the family home and where we had a, a holiday home, we might actually use that instead of um, being every couple of weekends we might get away. We might actually be splitting that, you know, through the week where we might have, you know, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday in the office, but the rest of the time in that co-primary um, home. Yeah. Uh, but then you've got others too that, you know, have, have seen this pandemic and, you know, I guess we're all very, very hopeful that we're out of it and we're not going to see this um, happen again. But then I guess there's others that have the, um, the, you know, the frame of mind that this could happen again. And the fact that we have had um, border closures. I mean, to be talking about border closures, you know, even three years ago in Australia would be quite a like to be having a conversation with my with myself three years ago about not going, not being able to freely go up to Queensland to visit my uh, my niece and nephew. It's just, you know, I, I guess we're living a, a very different world, and that I think has has somewhat brought in an element of sh- not shock, but oh, okay, maybe maybe I do need to have that um that getaway um and options and options as well i guess you know it's like where the you doomsday might have a- um bunker that you still have if a tornado comes um you know maybe i do need a, a 10 million dollar house in this beach location <laughs> if i can't travel around the world because of a global pandemic um it sort of reminds but it's me also, of that yeah look i guess we're still you know right now not knowing that we can go to queensland you know it seems to be that you know, I guess in a natural progression over Christmas or so forth for a lot of families. But, you know, if we can't get up to Queensland, I mean, there, there's you've got to look at different options in your own state. And, you know, there's, there's country options and there's also coastal options. So for me, that's, mm. you know, looking at a, a place in the city, a place in the country, a place in, on the coast. That's already three homes in New South Wales. If, you know, I take my, my situation into um, the example, um, it, 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 it's just creating options. It's creating op- options in a um, situation right now where we don't have many options, I guess, freely, free to choose. So this cohort has increased in size by 11% in the last yes. year. Um, they're buying up property that is scarce by nature anyway because previously there were less people that could afford it. And so therefore you've got mm. increased demand, decreasing supply, and then that's why you're seeing such incredible price growth in this segment, I would posit. Um, where have they come from? Where have that 11% come from? 
Yeah, I guess looking at that that wealthy um, population, it's um, it's probably uh, how how could I say it when we. We have the opportunity every year to ask our ultra wealthy clients, uh, you know, how do they create their wealth? And it's it's about wealth creation. It's it's you know, I guess looking from our millionaire millionaire cohort, which is those that you know a million US, um, including the primary residents. Taking nothing anymore. I know (laughs) it's all to them. (laughs) Yeah, it's small fry now. Yeah. Um, But looking at that ultra wealthy population, um, each year we do have the opportunity to ask in our um, attitude survey within our wealth report. You know, how do they create their wealth? And um, forty three percent in Australia say that um, it's from their own business. Um, So obviously, you know, chatting earlier about um, low interest rate environment they are able to, I guess, invest more money into their own business. So, therefore, they're seeing more uh, wealth created that way. Um, But, you know, I guess they are, um, you know, a lot of uh, very savvy investors and their their investment portfolios themselves have grown uh, about 30% say that that's where uh, they're they're making their money. For those on salaries, um, it's about 13% um, say that that's where their their wealth is is made so i guess looking at all those things combined you know we we often ask the question about you know what they're worried about um because that's always a good indication of you know what's going to be there on their minds i guess in the coming year and it's quite interesting because we're obviously uh talking about the the pandemic and um 89 said that they were um, worried about the pandemic and the impact in 2021 and you know given we're almost at the tail end of the year it certainly has played out that way but quite interestingly 89 percent also said that they saw that as an opportunity mm. uh, for future uh, wealth creation um, and and uh, I guess also going forward that um, the technology disruption um, that's come about, um, you know, two, two-thirds of our ultra-wealthy clients believe that that is an opportunity um, as well as things like, you know, the ESG agenda, um, you know, transferring, um, I guess, homes and, and certainly uh, other uh, property types to make sure that they are uh, environmentally uh, aware of, mm. of their, their position in this world. Um, you know, but, you know, I was about to say you just got a, given a great insight into what makes, you know, the mind of an ultra-wealthy person and that is looking at times of challenge for the opportunity in it rather than, mm. so they might be worried about the pandemic but at the same time they're actually grabbing it with both hands and say, well, right, what, what does this offer? Mm. Um, and as opposed to sitting around going, oh, you know, hunkering down and, and going into a bunker and sort of trying to preserve they're expanding. So that's quite interesting. Oh, for sure. And I guess, you know, we are talking about a group that are, you know, incredibly wealthy. And what we do see with that is they also um, are um, very philanthropic with their activities. And um, we know that, you know, um, when we sort of ask the question about their activities in this space um, over the past year, um, 29% said that they'd increased their activities. And when we sort of ask, well, what, in what way have you, you know, increased your philanthropic activity? Um, you know, almost 80% said that it was around healthcare and disease prevention. I mean, that's kind of a, a no-brainer mm. in today's world. Um, but, you know, 71% were interested in conservation and the environment. Um, and about 44% said they'd increase mm. their interest in education. So um, we know that, you know, obviously they are building up their own personal wealth, but they also do, you know, give back as well to yeah. our, our communities. Well, I mean, I got the Canva uh, couple. I mean, that's pretty amazing. They've sort of gone from whatever, a couple of bill to 15 bill, you know, if, I mean, it's only tangible, intangible money at the moment because it's based on a, a raise in a business. But I mean, they basically said they're going to give it all away, right? Uh, which is amazing. Uh, and I think the next cohort of uh, ultra wealthy, I think they're starting to, to get that belief. So I think that's good for the world to share this uh, unspendable wealth, you know, uh, across the market. Michelle, what about this global impact of uh, you know, we say 11%. Is there a lot of those you know, people coming from China or from India or the UK or US, you know, moving to Australia and bringing their wealth with them? And, um, you know, when you say we've got, you know, a cohort of people wealthy in Australia, at a global sense, we're so tiny. And so if we keep encouraging people from the world to come to Australia that have got ultra wealth, 
ultimately that's going to uh, increase that because we're just such a small number are we still do you think that we're going to still see a lot of people ultra wealthy wanting to come to australia more or less post pandemic or what's the conversations you're sort of having yeah absolutely i mean it, i guess um you know living through um the pandemic here in australia we've had a very different experience to those around the world and not not just talking about, I guess, um, the Asian, um, you know, countries and territories, but also, you know, those in Europe um, and, and the US. Uh, I guess um, the way we have pen- we have handled it, um, we have been seen at times as, you know, we, we ha- could go to the footy at the time when they couldn't. So I guess that at those times when we have been in lockdown, we look to other countries to see how they've been handling it. And I guess for, um, I guess, Melbourne aside, a lot of our cities have been open um, a lot more than where um, they, they were coming from. So I've, we... From a, um, a, a country point of view and um, looking at our prime property um, market, we're very, um, we're very small um, on, a, on a global scale, but that also, again, creates opportunity. Um, if we look at how much, um, you know, one million US buys you around the world, uh, in um, our Australian cities, we can buy so much more compared to others, other cities. Mm. Um, you know, a place, you know, like on a rough um, comparison, you know, in, in Sydney, you could buy 50 square metres of internal luxury uh, floor space. Mm. Whereas if you were comparing that to somewhere like London or New York or, you know, Monaco, it's mm. down around the 20 square metres. So when we're talking about this prestige end of the market, there's a lot of opportunities. So there would be no doubt uh, people considering our cities just for that reason, that they, their money can go so much further, especially when there's a currency play, uh, which is to their advantage. Uh, so I guess there's that component. Um, there's also, you know, obviously the, the when our borders reopen, you know, there's a lot of encouragement of um, uh, of wealthier people t- coming to invest in a business sense into our country. So that's also an attraction uh, where people have been taking that up. Uh, I guess when you're looking at um, the, just the rate of growth around the world, um, by far in 2020, Australia did see um, a, a higher growth mm. than, than global. Um, and if we were to do, I guess, draw some comparison where we saw that 11% growth, um, we were the eighth fastest um, population growth in that ultra wealthy space uh, last year. Um, you know, I guess comparing that to others um, sort of at the top of the table, places like, you know, Romania and Poland, again, coming off, I guess, a lower base. Um, but even, you know, just places like Chinese uh, uh, mainland, um, they're sort of up around the 16% growth over that time. So it's, um, we're not, we're certainly not um, on our own <laughs> growing this population, but as you said, like we are coming off a much lower base and there's a lot more, I guess, opportunity here um, compared to other uh, places around the world. I mean, the currency thing's a huge thing, right? Like if uh, the Australian dollar is cheap at a global sense, um, that's going to encourage more people to come to Australia, right? Because they're going to get more for their money from the currency. I mean, how do you sort of your investors sort of uh, how do they talk around that? I mean, what do they think's cheap? You know, is the Australian currency cheap at the moment, or is it what it was before, or how do they sort of think about it? Yeah, look, it's certainly a big factor, and um, I guess it's twofold. It's those that are uh, international buyers that are looking to buy for an investment when they holiday here or for when they eventually move here or retire here. Um, but then you've also got those that other group uh, of Australian expats that are, you know, working around the world and they're making, you know, quite good money in mm. different markets. And they're, you know, obviously constantly <laughs> watching the exchange rate because they know that at some point they're going to return home. Um, and I guess the pandemic did show as soon as, you know, that uh, we started to... Uh, um, lockdown here in Australia, we, our inquiries, um, you know, we had a, about a 25% portion of inquiries on each of our prestige properties, roughly, uh, uh, being expats. So those that were, I guess, looking to come back straight away and needing to buy a, a place to, to live in when they returned, um, those that were... I guess reassessing their situation and thinking that okay we're going to be moving back soon let's let's explore the market and then there were others that were just looking to buy a home that were um, 
they, they wanted to ha- have, a, I guess, a, a property here for when they did return but had no intention to return um, short term. So I guess we, we were sort of, um, you know, looking at all of those inquiries and um, the currency play at that time, I, I was like sort of March, April, May, was quite favourable from yeah. a currency exchange point of view and, you know, it was off, inquiry was off the charts. So um, throughout the year it has sort of swayed the other way that it wasn't as favourable. Um, so it's, it's almost like the, the perfect um, situation where um, our property is um, certainly <laughs> desirable but if there's a currency play over the top of that, it just makes it so much sweeter yeah. uh, to buy at the right time. So you, you obviously... You're saying there that basically you can actually see the level of inquiry that goes up when the, our currency goes down. Then we actually interviewed a, uh, a, a financial planner who specialises in the expat market a few episodes back, uh, Brett Evans, and mm-hmm. he was talking about the very unfavourable uh, tax situation for expats um, and overseas investors, actually. So if, if they're sort of that reactive to currency movements, how aware are they of the actual tax situation when it comes to buying property in Australia when they're not living here? Does yeah, it factor it, in? It, uh, it, it depends what, what tax, I guess, we're, we're talking about. Obviously, the, um, the capital gains tax over the past 12 months, they were certainly keeping an eye on that and making sure that they were adjusting their portfolios to react to that um, tax that was introduced. Mm. Uh, in saying that, though, um, <laughs> It's, I guess it's, it's about a, a longer-term play yep. and if they are looking at always returning to Australia, it's just making sure that they purchase the right property at the right time for them. Um, at the moment, I guess when we're talking about this prestige um, end of the market, there really isn't much to choose from. So for our, our local people that are currently, um, I guess, residing in Australia, they're not only, um, I guess, um, competing with each other on the ground, but we also do have these voices, you know, coming from that expat group that are just making sure that they do have a property to return to. So if they're seeing that there's mm. already slim pickings and the prices are, uh, you know, they're not, not slowing um, and we don't expect them to slow over the coming year, it's just about getting into the market more so for when they return. Um, it's, it's a... Um, it, it's it's more about um, not necessarily it's certainly buying at the right price. Don't don't get me wrong, but it's making sure that it's the right property for them and the right location. That's probably more of a um, important, um, probably two more important factors than the tax component um, when we're talking about the prestige end of town. It's important, but it's more about having the, the right property in the right place for a prestige buyer. Without a doubt, having, you know, several properties in your portfolio gives you options. Um, and maintaining, you know, can certainly add up. I know mm. that um, maintaining properties that aren't lived in, I think, are, are certainly, um, uh, you know, a, a, a quite expensive um, to, to do that. But I guess when you're looking at property, um, you can always, I guess, over um, a certain, well, certainly the price um, performance has been, you know, exceptional for prestige homes over the last, you know, I could say two years, three years, 10 years. It has certainly grown, um, you know, significantly um, over that time. So one would think that, you know, investing in a, a portfolio that over, you know, a five year or 10 year period, you probably are going to see that, you know, come back to you. Um, I guess the other the other part of property is that you can always um, you know renovate, expand, improve. Um, if there's a chance that you know you're not going to see that um, capital growth that you thought you were going to see, so there's um, I guess that possibility that you can improve the properties if you did want to sell out uh, down the line. But I mean, you know, I, I, I could draw on so many different examples of of different clients that you know they've essentially okay they might have. Um, you know, five or six properties in their portfolio, but they've also got, you know, three kids. <laughs> so if you start to sort of divvy that up and we go back to the conversation about wealth preservation and looking at future generations, um, you know, it could be a situation where, you know, the parents are, are living in one home and it might not be necessarily in a city, but, um, you know, <laughs> we've got kids, you know, and and their family now residing in the home down the street and they're all quite close by. And I guess if anything, the pandemic has highlighted that you do want your family 
um, most times <laughs> close by. Um, so, you know, taking up those um, different options just means that they, they have options for their families uh, going forward. Um, but it's, it's really about um, making sure that they, I guess, comfortable with their purchase now that, you know, in the future, uh, this property could, you know, certainly appreciate in value, but also it's there for their, their use should they choose to do that. I know a number of not ultra wealthy people, just plain wealthy people that um, that do that. But with even with them to some degree, but with the ultra wealthy, I mean, is there a level of, um, I guess, I buy it because I can that comes into it rather than because it's really a good investment, I buy it because I want it? Because, you know, if you've already got that much money, you, you know, every dollar doesn't actually have to work as hard as it, it does for somebody who's on the ascendant. Is there a little bit of that, do you think? Well, look, I, I think to some extent it's, I guess, we're, we're dealing with a, a group of people that love to um, also collect, you know, luxury um, mm. items. So, you know, we call them objects of desire. Um, but, you know, having the, the best, um, you know, boat that they could afford, um, they might have several boats. <laughs> they might have several cars. Property is no different to that, really. Mm. So, yes, you're right in a way. It is a, a collectible. Um, but also those collectible items fit quite nice into those homes as well. So if they do have several cars, a large car collection, you know, if you bought a property on the um, you know periphery of one of the capital cities and you're able to, um, you had the, the flexibility of installing a, um, a nice um, large shed, you could possibly house your 10 car collection of every, um, you know, whatever choice of, you know, Maserati <laughs> parked next to your Lamborghini, next, you know, to your Bentley. Um, it gives you options to, to, to do that. So um, certainly. If you like what you're hearing here, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars, please. Every review helps make it easier for other people to find us and hear what our amazing guests have to say. We love hearing your questions and we're planning more listener Q&A episodes. Please send your questions in. You can send them via the website, which is theelephantintheroom.com.au or directly via email to questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au. So, I mean, that's the irony of sort of capitalism, right? It's not fair and it sort of splits wealth um, not evenly across our population and if anything, it's got worse over time. You can see it in all the figures. But a lot of the people with capitalism buy um, or in terms of the wealth, you keep buying scarce assets, right? And then scarce assets outperform um, just because of scarcity uh, and there's a growing subset of the world that sort of want them, right? And so it sort of a, it continues. This cycle is just going to keep on continuing, right? Because if more people want old Porsches, and there's less Porsches every year because of, you know, just things Accidents. happen. <laughs> Rust. Um, people lose them in barns. But uh, there's a growing subset of the world that are keep on growing their wealth. Um, you then just keep on creating this sort of uh, flow-on effect. So do you just see this um, just inherently just continuing where um, inequality is just going to keep on getting worse? There's going to be a keep on growing every year. There's going to be more and more wealthy over sort of 30 million. The population still is going to grow from 7 billion to 10 billion, right? So, you know, it's it, the number is purely just out of that's going to grow. Um, and they're all going to similarly want the same lifestyle, right? Beautiful houses, beautiful cars, etc. Um, so do you just see that for the, the ultra wealthy, just see that um, reality not changing, right? this current system for the world global order is not going to change hence why um we can just continue to invest this way it's um i guess looking at this this population it we've i guess we would traditionally think or feel in australia that a lot of this would be inherited wealth um not necessarily self-made wealth that yeah. is certainly shifting over recent years and more than ever, like you've touched on um, some of the entrepreneurs that are coming through um, our, yep. our our ranks as, as clients of you know our ultra wealthy clients, and they have a very different mindset to I guess their um, mm. the generations before them, and it is a lot about giving back, um, and it is a lot about not necessarily flaunting that wealth. I guess you've got, I guess in any part of society, you've got those that do like to flaunt it. But there is a, a now a, um, mm. I guess more around being more aware of, um, of having wealth and making sure that you are um, giving back to society in a way that 
um, if anything, you know, I guess uh, gives uh, whatever your your business is, um, it just gives you a bit more security to appeal to, to more people around the world. Uh, we know that, um, you know, some of the clients that are, are coming through in terms of buying these prestige homes, you know, we're seeing a lot of, um, you know, young um um, tech or media, um, yeah. it's you know whether it's sporting people or you know some uh, we touched on um, you know the acting world. You know, I guess that we're seeing a lot of wealth being um, uh, generated by a very much younger cohort that didn't necessarily come from wealth. So they are very conscious about making sure that they are um, leaving an impact not just on their um, whatever their business. Um, is um, contributing back to society, but I guess a personal um, contribution back, uh, and then really trying to reduce their footprint on this, you know, on this on this earth. Sort of ironic, isn't it? Because you look at the Instagram generation, and and really, I guess what's got a lot of traffic on Insta which is this sort of aspirational um, idea of, of wanting that lifestyle. But what you're saying is people have actually achieved it. You're saying that there's actually quite a movement in reverse mm. to that, which is sort of nice to hear. But you, Knight Frank actually is constructing property for these people, right? You know, you guys are developers. Is, is that fair to say? Um, so so we would, we've been talking about the scarcity of these assets being established properties spread out across the country, really, that, that have been in hot uh, demand. And, of course, if you're going to be buying a beach house, for instance, there's only so much coast. You know, if you're going to be buying a rural estate, uh, there's only so many of those that are actually currently in existence. But if you're building um, prestige properties for that particular cohort, you know, what are some of the, the differences, I guess, in, in terms of what you – you know, what are the, some of the, the considerations, I guess, that are different for that marketplace versus your stock standard, other than the obvious, mm. obviously, but then your stock standard um, type of development? Yeah, look, at, at Night Frank, we sell properties that are established, but also those that are uh, being yep. built. You're, you're mm. right. We, we do get involved in that development space of, of selling that stock. So whether it be from a development site point of view or um, looking at it from a selling apartments or luxury apartments off the plan. And it's, um, you know, it's scarcity is, is, a, is a good word because wherever you are um, around the the, uh, the country, there is only so much of those vantage spots that you can buy a development site yeah. to build. And uh, so we, you know, we, I guess we're looking at it from a development site point of view. There's only so many <laughs> sites, if we're talking about Sydney Harbour, mm. where you would yeah. possibly need to knock over an existing home or something that's being, you know, a, a reuse um, to be, a, you know, luxury apartments. And I guess there's also been a trend towards um, more boutique developments that don't necessarily have as many, um, yeah. you know, a tower situation. It's more about having a, a smaller, um, you know, a group of, um, you know, whether it's townhouses or just a smaller development. We see that more in Sydney now, whereas, you know, I guess going down to Melbourne, we're seeing a lot more and there is certainly an, an, a, a planning ability to go much higher in terms of apartments in Melbourne. But I guess that it takes it right back to the development site point of view that it's there's not so many of them going around. So developers certainly um, are willing to pay more for a site that is well located because they know that they can build a, a really good, um, you know, luxury uh, development on there, uh, on that site. So then I guess taking it to um, that, the fact that we're not seeing as many of those uh, being built, that apartments being sold off the plan, you know, there's very few. And when we look at the pipeline over the, the next three years, looking at um, projects that are currently under construction or being marketed and will be able to be built in the next three years, it diminishes quite quickly um, across across the country. So the fact that we're talking now about not having um, much um, a choice to buy established stock. We're actually talking about the same thing for yeah. new product off mm -hmm. the plan as well. So I guess when we're looking at um, you know developers in this space, um, they, they they're really they're the ones that are driving the market because if they can't build it, then we're not necessarily going to have the product to to sell um, onto uh, luxury um, apartment buyers. 
Um, but I guess when we're looking, you know, around the world, we are seeing the same. Like we're we're a relatively young country, so when we talk to you know colleagues around the the world, I mean, you know, a lot of these cities uh, have been experiencing this for such a, a long time that you know obviously that um, regeneration of different parts of each city. Um, mm. Where I guess we're, we're a very young country, but we're still you know I guess seeing those limitations. Um, we're, we're seeing you know this constant regeneration going in Sydney and Melbourne in particular. In fact, the Sydney CBD is not as that exciting. I mean, I know uh, Sydney City came out with Living City as a sort of a concept or a, um, a, a mantra some time ago, years ago now. You know, is there a sort of a shift or a push for, for major developers to actually repurpose more office buildings and other commercial spaces? Is that Because that sort of started to happen and then it seemed to pull back a little bit. Is that is that still on the go? And is there, an, is there a demand for, for this sort of cohort to want to live there? Yeah, look, I think that there's certainly the demand. <laughs> Talking to our clients, there is a demand for uh, people to be living um, close yep. to the city. But when we, I guess, looking at the planning regulations, if we just take, and obviously planning regulations are so different from city or even mm. suburb to suburb, but looking at the Sydney CBD, there is a um, a preference towards keeping it a uh, a commercial district. Mm. Um, so there is only very limited opportunities um, right. in the Sydney CBD to build residential. And those towers that have come out of the ground, there's a you know a handful of projects that have finished up yep. um, in the mm. past six months and yep. are um, you know. <laughs> Yeah, they're essentially being sold off the plan and now uh, in a position where people are starting to move in. You know, we had the uh, the opportunity to sell Crown Residences at Wambarangaroo and yep. I know you said that the CBD is not that exciting, but when you have a look at the skyline now to have a, yep. you know, a, a stunning building on the skyline um, where you can buy one of those residences at the very top, you know, the unique view, it's not going to be <laughs> found again just yeah. because of its location. So there's, there's, um, I guess, a, an example of where this product can be quite unique for buyers. Is um, that too yeah. high? You know, like you get so high you look over everything <laughs> rather than add anything. Do you know what I mean? Oh, like, like, I guess I've never really um, – I mean, I have been high up in buildings, but I've never sort of thought about living uh, that high. Yeah, it's interesting. Obviously, you know, I work in an office building, which, which you know, we're quite a, quite a few stories high. And I, I used to be scared of heights as a as a child, and now I don't think twice about it. I think I'm just kind of used to working in high rise. So to live in in uh, high rise, I don't think um, yeah, it, it would be too different for, for myself. But yeah. I guess that that project in in particular, I've I've been right up to um, the the penthouse there, um, which is uh, the eighty first floor. I would definitely. Yeah quite high um, but what it actually creates is because it's um, position um, of its location in Barangaroo you can actually see back towards the Blue Mountains mm. and yep. back over sort of Darling Harbour and that um, yep. that view line is quite different to anything I've experienced in an office building in the CBD so you, you're kind of seeing new um, new horizons that I guess you haven't seen anywhere else. Quite, um, <laughs> quite Yeah, quite literally. But also just to have that panoramic view of the Sydney Harbour, um, you know, that's, um, I guess, something that is, you know, you, you can't replace that. That's the money shot. If you can, yep. if you've got a property that's located on Sydney Harbour with the Sydney Harbour Bridge and the Opera House in, in shot, you know, mm. that's your money shot. And, um, you know, international locals alike, um, that's something that's not necessarily going to be built out. <laughs> so yeah. it's certainly something that they, they aspire to have when you go out to the balcony that you can see that in shot when entertaining friends yeah. and family. Can you I mean, entertain? A lot. I, sorry, I just have to ask. Can you entertain on the eighty-first floor? I mean, I've been on the tenth. I lived on a tenth floor once, and the wind comes and really blows you away. You know, like, is it possible? <laughs> oh, look! I, the the balcony there is is unreal. Um, yeah. The you know the fact that there's a they've got like a um, a jacuzzi type pool. I'm not. I, I obviously I'm not in the business of selling. I'm the, I'm the researcher, but um, the, like to be sitting in that pool and having that enjoying that view. Um, yeah. And just the architecture design of um, you know incorporating balconies so high up um, is just phenomenal. Um, it's yeah. possible. <laughs> 
I mean, I think the uh, we're not really a fan of sort of off the plan and new property because it's not scarce, right? And the majority of it can be replicated and rebuilt. But in this sort of upper echelon of off the plan, it absolutely is scarce, right? There's only one spot for Barangaroo, you know, one Sydney Harbour, there's only one spot for opera residences. Um, and if you can, and, you know, we had clients trying to buy in the Sirius building, um, you know, earlier this year. Uh, and we're talking like four to seven million dollars for these apartments, but you cannot replace where their location is and the view you get when you wake up in the morning. And um, so this off the plan space um, and the, the quality of the build goes through the roof. You know, you uh, the, the materials they're using are longevity um, rather than trying to hit the affordability market. And so I think absolutely. And when you compare, I call it the Manhattan effect, right? Like if people want to uh, live in Manhattan, they all want to live as high as they can overlooking Central Park, right? And there's only so many buildings that have got unbuilt out views uh, and can never be built out in Central Park. And so it's a really interesting sort of place where um, that off the plan space, I feel like you can make so much money there because, you know, you're buying a contract of a very scarce building with a small deposit down. Um, and I imagine a lot of the wealthy just literally take lots of bets on these um, these buildings, right? They have no desire to sort of live in them. They're just going to sell them when they um, they finish. Do you find that, that a lot of people turn these over? They just literally sign them up when they first um, get the off-the-plan availability? Look, I think it's – if you're talking about other global cities, I think that's certainly an appeal that, that – um, um, the flipping concept is very, you know, uh, ripe through uh, this prestige product mm. uh, where they know that they're working with a, a, a reputable developer. They know yep. what products they're going to get at the end. They know there's going to be quality. Um, but I guess in, in Australia, we, we haven't seen enough of this stock being built right. for them to afford to offload it. Right. <laughs> it's almost <laughs> like for now, I think I'm going to hold on to this and enjoy it. And, mm. you know, there, there's there's still not that many projects in the pipeline. So it would be worth my while to hold on to this right now. Gotcha. You know, there, there's, <laughs> there's literally only a handful of being, being <laughs> built in each of the cities. Yeah. Um, and when we're talking about super prime, I, I mean, again, just drawing on that, that um, the crown residences at Wambarangaroo, we're talking about uh, the concept of having a penthouse on every floor of that mm. of that building of the the residential component yeah. that's quite a, a different concept than what we're used to here in australia yes certainly we're sort of seeing that in other parts around the world but to have a you know a, a, we, we call it right sizing here at night frank where yeah. you you literally have a, you know a, an apartment that has house-like proportions mm. yeah. uh in the sky so it's it's very different to just having a, um, you know, your, your two bed and two bath and it's a very yeah. different concept. Absolutely. You're able to entertain. But I guess the other emerging part that we um, haven't seen as much of in Australia is the branded residence concept where it's a hotel-led development where yeah. you can enjoy the facilities of that hotel and, you know, you're almost, you know, you're literally living in a hotel but it's about that lock up and leave and mm. concierge and amenities that are just off, off the charts. It means that when borders reopen and people can travel around the world again, having a, 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 a property where you can just say, okay, tomorrow I'm flying to Paris, the, to know that you can come back to that property and someone's, um, you know, put, you know, you walk in, you've got fresh flowers on the counter, you've got a, a, a fridge that's fully stocked, mm. and you know that you're you're living in a a branded um, concept that they don't want that brand to be diminished in any way. So mm. there's, it's almost a no-brainer that going forward that property is always going to be maintained to the highest standard. Mm. And because you're within a hotel um, building, your strata levies actually do come down quite a lot because the hotel component takes up a, a large part of that. Mm. So I think that's something going forward. We know that there's a lot of hotel groups that are talking to developers here in Australia about having this, um, you know, branded residence concept um, being built, um, not only in Sydney, but obviously other cities around uh, the country. So that's something certainly to watch going forward mm. in this space. It is interesting because, you know, I've had a few uh, clients over the years who have wanted, you know, substantial sized apartments and, and 
they're, they're always difficult to find. I, I have a, a great story about one I bought in Bellevue Hill for a client where, you know, in the particular um, development, it was unique in that three houses had been knocked down to build this instead of just two. Most sites are just two houses been knocked down to build a, a small building and so therefore the actual apartments can't possibly have the same scale um, because they just don't have the footprint. And so that was just one example. But recently I've been looking for another client who's really quite keen to have that house report, house proportioned apartment and looking at a number of buildings where somebody has gone and bought two off the plan together and actually joined them together, but it was never designed for that in the first place. Mm. So there's always something not quite right. The proportions of the kitchen might not be right. Yeah. Or the, there's like these two disjointed living areas rather than, you know, it's rather than a well-proportioned one larger and one smaller or the outdoor space isn't well designed or, or integrated well enough. You know, there's, there's, there's something always a bit awkward about it. Um, so it is interesting that there's you're talking about this sort of concept of penthouse on every level. And I think that, you know, I've had a handful of clients over the years that you could see the demand for that. Um, oh, yeah. For sure. I mean, it's you know, we released our right-sizing report in 2020. We're actually almost ready to release our 2022 report, so certainly keep a lookout for that. Mm. Um, but we... Um, within that, we actually do a study of how many uh, three-bedroom apartments have been built sort of over the yeah. last three years and compared to what's actually in the pipeline. <laughs> and that's something that's very important because we do know that this group likes a larger uh, mm, apartment. Yeah. And you're right that in some of the more traditional um, and established apartments, they are looking at buying, uh, you know, more than one apartment and, and, and bringing them together. I guess when we're looking at the, you know, the ultra-wealthy population, they do have the money to be able to, you know, I guess reconfigure to some extent in being in an office, uh, being in yeah. an apartment uh, a tower. Uh, but, yeah, you're right. I, I know of a, um, you know, a client of ours that had a, a really um, – valuable uh, wine collection and for them to store that they almost needed a you know they had a kitchen and they had a butler's kitchen um, but they needed to make sure that they had that wine collection um, stored correctly um, so they reconfigured you know and bought two apartments put them together to make sure that they could look after that um, that collection um, but yeah no it's certainly important and I know that mo the more developers we speak to they are conscious that um, you know, we're obviously steering away from the, I guess, mainstream investor market where you're looking at, you know, one and two bedroom apartments being built. They, they, they are aware that, um, you know, this luxury end of town are looking for more space and making sure that it's built yeah. to the right proportion. Mm. Um, what do you think about this sort of uh, compounding impact where, uh, you know, everyone's got a, you know, they've got an 800 square metre block of land or maybe it's 1,200 and then the neighbour's got another 1,200 and maybe it's 20 million. But, you know, if I join them together, I've got 2,500 of square metres in, you know, waterfront, right? You know, a lot of people with the wealthy, they want to buy the neighbours and they want to join the pieces of land together. Is that quite common that, um, you know, people are trying to buy their neighbours out and try to build these like ultra wealthy compounds? Do you still see that? Because that creates more scarcity of that top end, right? Um, and similar to what Veronica was talking about, if we, you know, if you can sell apartments at $10 million a pop, you can afford to knock down a $20 million house um, and build six $10 million apartments. And so, you know, that's going to create scarcity because, you know, you're losing houses. So do you just think that this is ultimately just creating less and less um, houses at that higher end because we're knocking them down to build compounds and apartment blocks? Yeah, look, it, it, there's, there's certainly parts of Sydney that I know that as soon as, you know, there's any any sniff of a real estate agent going down the street, the neighbours are onto it because yeah. who's looking to, you know, to shift because I might I might keep my eye on that one, especially if it's next door. You know, there's yeah. certainly examples where mm. uh, we know of um, quite large prestige homes uh, where uh, I guess the our clients live in, um, but then next door they also own that site and that might be where the caretaker lives. Um mm. And that's that. You know, it's again for um, you know a future um, a future opportunity. Whether that is to expand the the home and make it a, a quite a large compound, mm. um, or you know possibly sell it off in the future. But it also means that it it I guess creates when we're talking about standalone homes, it creates an element of privacy and security yeah. mm. for um, you know those that are um, living in that that 
you know, main residence. Uh, and that, you know, I guess, allows that. The other part of, um, you know, essentially knocking that over to, to build luxury apartments, we have seen, you know, elements of that uh, across our cities. Uh, yeah. But it obviously comes down to planning regulations and obviously people living in that street um, might not necessarily be um, too happy with having a, a, a complex being built within <laughs> their street. Um, but in saying that, we're, the more and more um, there's also a segment of the market where more and more we're talking to clients that are looking at their large residence and realising that it's really hard to upkeep and it's not necessarily that they don't have the money but they just don't have the energy to, mm. you know, to make sure that they've got the pool guy and their six gardeners and they're, you know, they're all on the payroll but making sure that uh, they've got time to actually enjoy themselves. So mm. they are looking at a product that is essentially in one of those complexes. They want to stay yeah. in the same location um, yeah. but also have um, a, a property that's easy to maintain, low or no maintenance at all. Uh, and so, therefore, it's, it's a, I guess, that trade-off of being in the, the location where your family home has been but also being able to live in that same um, type of location um, but in a property that suits you. So they want the full life cycle. I guess the big risk, you know, all this legacy building as well is that, uh, you know, governments reintroduce land uh, uh, death taxes because, I, you know, over the years, you know, particularly in places like Hunters Hill and um, a lot of waterfront homes where uh, back in the day when death taxes were in place and so somebody would have inherited the big, beautiful old home and they've had to carve up the land to basically pay the death taxes and some shocking um, carve-ups that have happened where the big stately manor might have been sitting up on the hill and then they've had to sell off the actual blocks of land closer to the waterfront where <laughs> these houses built in front of them. So um, it would be interesting to see if that's the full circle on this at some point. Yeah. <laughs> have you got a proper dumbo for us, Michelle? Oh, look, I think something – I think you can always learn. I, I, you, yeah. I like your, your concept of having the the, uh, the experience to learn from. Um, but I guess being um, at Night Frank, you know, we don't just necessarily plant ourselves in Sydney. We're obviously around the world. But I think it's really important that if you are entering a new market that you really do your research um, mm. before you make the move or, or make the purchase. Um, I think there's – um, you know, I guess there's a, there's a, there could be the situation where your, your eyes have just been fixated on the market that you've lived in and, and invested in, in in the past. But, you know, I guess there are opportunities around, um, you know, around Australia in this prestige space where your money can go so much further. Um, and there's obviously different drivers for those markets as well. So where, you know, we do have a scarcity issue, you know, running stride through Sydney, you know, that's not necessarily the case for every city around around mm. the country. So my, I guess my, um, my ad advice around that would be just to do your research because we've certainly seen clients and, um, you know, that are just familiar with what they know and they just, you know, come in into a market and, and couldn't believe they got it, you know, got it so quickly. And, <laughs> and I, only, yeah. only, I only paid this much, but, well, if you have a look at some of the sales that happened around there, you probably paid a little bit too much. But yeah. at the same time, when we're talking about the prestige end of town, as I mentioned earlier, it's really important to get the property um, in the right location and the right property for them. So they might feel quite comfortable making that purchase but yeah. at the same time when you're a researcher and you're analyzing the data and you know some of the sales that have happened around there and you know that they probably could have got a better a better deal yeah. than that it <laughs> kind of just makes me go oh but at the same time they've then got a property they're probably going to sit on for quite a number of years and will certainly make that money back yeah it's that local knowledge right not take your sydney glasses off or your whatever glasses and you know trying to apply the sydney reality to that sort of market um what's scarce there how agents deal the price guides for sure know, everything changes right and they just say oh well, that's just i'm going to negotiate the same way as i would in that market or um yeah we can definitely even see that uh, clients are doing that at the moment where they're having to move to uh you know they can't buy in sydney for example they're moving to you know, a client buy just up near byron the other day and another client um you know another buy in central coast and so they're just you know everyone deals in a different way right mm -hmm. um and the yeah. way they've missed out at auctions in Sydney, they go in really gung-ho. Um, 
And I think the agents are there like, wow, where'd this office come from after three days? And it's huge. Um, let's just take it. And um, yeah, we're yeah. the best approach. And look, it's, it's true. Like, and obviously every, and it, I often get asked, you know, how's the market going in Australia? And it's like, yeah. okay, okay, pull up a chair. How do we, we've got to talk through every market here. Um, <laughs> yeah. But it's true. Like, you know, if we're, we've certainly got that fear of missing out and it's happening in a lot of our major capital cities. But we've also got um, some um, cities that, you know, don't necessarily um, like to play with, you know, the auction um, uh, scenario of selling a, a home. So even if you might have inherited or have had a property sitting, um, you know, for some time in, in a market and you, you want to maybe sell it off, it's about knowing what happens in that market um, locally to get the best result for you as well. Um, so, you know, that's that's probably um, the, the, the best advice I could give um, is, is to do your research. Michelle, that's been a great chat. Thank you so much for joining us. We've got, uh, we'll pop uh, some links in the show notes. So I've got one of your reports, which is a Outlook re- 2021 Outlet re- Outlook report, I should say, Rethinking and Living. If there's anything else you want to, you think we should share with our listeners, then send the links through and we'll make sure, listeners, that these are actually in the show notes for you. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Michelle. Great episode and uh, super interesting, this prestige space because uh, the laws of demand and supply play out um, dramatically. Uh, and, and interest rates and there's so much going on so such a good chat thank you thank you thanks for having me if you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in sydney's inner west eastern suburbs or north shore my team and i can help you buy without regrets reach out via my website gooddeeds.com.au if you're looking to buy your first home thinking of upgrading into a new one or purchasing an investment property anywhere in australia my team love to carefully guide you on this journey and most importantly, get the finance right. Reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. Thanks for joining us. We'd love to see you again. And remember, don't be a dumbo. Yeah.